Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Greg Lois. Uh, standing to my left, your right, this is Christian Cisan from our New York Workers' Comp Defense Practice. Thanks for being here, Christian. Uh, if you're here today, it's to learn about uh, reimbursement, liens, and uh, civil subrogation in the context of New York Workers' Compensation claims. Uh, this is a totally live webinar. Uh, please feel free to ask questions. We have a second laptop right here uh, so we can see your questions popping up. We'll try to answer as many of the questions as we can get through at the end of the webinar. Uh, so you can type them as we go, and we'll see them pop up, and we'll answer them at the end. So uh, let's begin. I hope everyone got the handout. There was a little bit of an issue with the email forward this morning. It can also be downloaded uh, right from your webinar screen. You, there should be a handout section. You can click and download that right now if you didn't get it in advance. Um, all right, let's begin. Sure. So let's start with the basics. Uh, we're going to take it as read, uh, a priori, that there is a workers' compensation claim pending. Uh, and let's talk about uh, the worker compensation carrier or insurer or employer's right to reimbursement from the proceeds of that civil claim. So what are the questions we look at, Christian? Thanks, Greg. So what we want to see is if there's a potential action in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Because that would give you the right to re get reimbursed on your lien. So, for instance, do we have an actual tortfeasor for the accident sustained by the claimant? For instance, do, did the claimant file a lawsuit against a third party who may have committed fault? And that's the type of background information we need to qualify and, and determine before we go forward. Okay, well, let's walk through the typical case. You know, we've got our typical claimant here on the screen uh, walking in through the parking lot. Uh, maybe this is in a parking lot that we own, has a slip and fall, uh, brings a claim against uh, the parking lot owner or maintainer. I had to digress because it looks like he did intentionally put himself in oh, that scenario. I but think you're a little bit jaded, pal. But for the purposes of this <laughs> webinar, we want to get those background questions answered, right? Who owned the garage? Who maintained this garage? Essentially, any third party that may be at fault for whom the claimant can then go after in a third-party cause of action. In this case, you do those background determinations to figure out whether or not your reimbursement would apply at a later date. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the common context we see this in are premises injuries, slip and falls, sure. machinery injuries, uh, did, who owned and controlled the machinery, who maintained it, who removed the guards, for example, um, and then, of course, motor vehicle accidents. Uh, so let's talk about getting reimbursement. Let's make the presumption that this injured claimant, our employee, uh, then did file a civil claim against somebody to, for recovery. Okay. So we want to talk about reimbursement, and we'll get to subrogation later because that's uh, a little bit different, but reimbursement is governed by Section 29, and it's self-executing because you don't actually have to do anything affirmatively to assert that right. It automatically applies once you have an established or an accepted workers' compensation claim. Which is a cool thing about New York. I mean, another state that we practice in New Jersey, you've got to serve all the parties with notice. There's timelines. There's actually the method of services even prescribed by the statute. New York, relatively easy. That thing is going to self-execute. And we do something in this office when we take a new file in to defend the workers' comp claim. Sure. So throughout the history of doing these claims, we know that there are some accidents that are generally moving forward to a third-party third action. Sure. So before we even know that there's a, a third-party action in case for, uh, for that particular accident, we might just send the Section 29 letter immediately to let everybody mm -hmm. know, hey, uh, we're going to make you on, on notice for the fact that we're going to get this reimbursement down the road. Yep. 
Yeah, and we do that pretty much at the beginning of the case, as soon as it comes in, as soon as we think there might be a civil case. And it really is belt and suspenders because in New York, technically, you don't even need to serve that Section 29 lien letter. We do it, though, and we think it's the best practice to do it, and we're very careful about the language we put into that letter. Sure, we're not consenting to that third-party settlement really ever until we see some numbers, but we'll get to that part mm -hmm. of it later. Mm -hmm. And then during the life cycle of the case, we're defending the workers' comp portion of the case and maybe monitoring that civil claim, and we're sure. constantly updating those civil attorneys with, here's what our lien is, here's what we're paying in indemnity, here's what we've paid in medical. So that's something that's constantly going on during the life of that case. Absolutely. All right, and let me just quickly address the last point, which is monitoring the civil claim. New York, relatively easy, does have electronic docketing system in the civil courts. Uh, not all of the filings in New York uh, in the civil courts are electronically filed, but most are. Most of the courts are doing that. Right, and there's actually other ways to, to check on it, too. Sometimes uh, the claimant will have his workers' compensation attorney have that information readily available. We can always make those checks uh, almost as alive and well checks at hearings when they can discuss uh, the status of their third-party action with the claimant. And it gives us an alternative method of finding out uh, how far along the case they are. Right, and we've put up on the screen the New York electronic docket searching tools that are available. But of course, if the claimant lives out of state but brings the claim in New York or vice versa, they could bring a federal action if there's diversity jurisdiction. Uh, they could bring action in other states that could stem from that New York workers' compensation Definitely. claim. Interestingly, the case law in New York is that the uh, state in which the benefits are being paid controls the state under which your reimbursement or subrogation rights control which is great because New York's got really strong reimbursement and subrogation statute. All right, so let's talk now about how much money we actually get back and, and when we can get money back. So the uh, slide here shows specifically the italicized font. We get everything back, and we tell that to our clients generally, right, because we already know that our right to reimbursement is up to the full uh, amount of our lien. That's indemnity and medical benefits. Now, there is a, a, a cutoff because we, we do uh, subtract attorney's fees and costs, and that's issued in a landmark uh, d decision in the Kelly case. Right, so you're entitled to essentially everything you've paid in medical benefits, all the indemnity that's been paid, temporary disability in, uh, benefits, and, of course, permanent disability course. in New York. So that could be loss of wage earning capacity awards or scheduled loss of use awards, subject to a reduction for attorney's fees and costs. Okay, uh, and that's, by the way, just before we move on to the next slide, that's in the case in which the claimants recovered more than they've actually received in workers' comp benefits. Right. So let's talk about how much we get back when they uh, got a recovery in the third-party context that was maybe significantly less than they received in the workers' comp context. So maybe in workers' comp, we've paid out a million dollars in medical benefits in lost time, and then they've settled their third-party case, that civil claim, for only $100,000. Right, and that's a rare instance, but it does happen every now and then. So what would happen in this case is that we would get a holiday uh, in the workers' comp arena, or we, if there is an ongoing benefit after the exhaustion of a lien, then we would get only have to pay our equitable share of that going forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in New York, we do get to take a future credit on ongoing medicals, which means you would pay them out at a reduced rate if there were medicals to be paid. Uh, New York does have a fee schedule, so oftentimes what we'll do is we'll say to the claimant, you pay those medicals out of pocket, and then we'll reimburse you at that one-third or whatever the reduced cost of litigation rate would be. 
Um, all right, let's talk about how we maximize reimbursement. And to talk about maximizing reimbursement, we're really going to talk about the practical aspects of this. Remember, we're entitled to everything that we've paid out in medical and lost time uh, and permanency awards minus that cost of litigation. So really one of the key things for us to do first is to find out exactly what was paid out in attorney's fees and costs. Um, you know, things such as filing fees, expert costs, investigation costs, all of that turns out to be that cost of litigation percentage. That's going to reduce our reimbursement. So that's important. Uh, let's talk about some other practical ways of maximizing sure. reimbursement. Sure. So that, that first bullet point is, is very important, right? We want to wait for an offer to settle in that third-party action. So essentially the claimant to get a number back right. either proposed by his third-party counsel or the, the yeah, defendant. Beware of theoreticals, right? Right. And the reason why we want to do that is we don't want to anchor ourselves to a number that can later be used against us. Yeah, or a percentage. Right. right. Same thing. Same same idea, right? You want to wait for that number to come back to you. And look, we don't. We know that sometimes uh, these attorneys contact you guys directly, even when you are represented by us or your other counsel, and they may threaten to abandon that claim. We always look at that as an empty threat. And the reason is subrogation, right? And we're going to get to that. They, if they abandon the claim then we can step into their shoes. So we never take that seriously. Don't let that be the reason you're agreeing to whatever demands that have. Let us take a look at it and make sure you're not agreeing to something that's not in your best interest. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, so many times the risk professional is contacted directly by that attorney in that third-party civil action. Right. They said, oh, my case stinks. It's awful. But I think I could settle it for a quarter million dollars. Will you guys go along with that? And by the way, will you reduce your lien? Hey, let's do a third, a third, a third. That's what everybody does in this state. Now, you as the risk professional are in a difficult position because they don't have a firm offer that they're actually dealing with, right? I mean, this is just purely hypothetical. Sure. Um, they're telling you, hey, uh, this case isn't so great, and, and maybe I won't even go forward with it because it's so bad. You know, that, that sort of veiled threat, I'm going to abandon this case. Right. And then they tell you something like, um, oh, and by the way, everybody, we always do it. A third, a third, a third in this jurisdiction. Well, that's all hogwash. Uh, absolutely not. There's no rule or case law that says you have to take a third, a third, a third uh, in this jurisdiction. Um, and there's other things we can do to maximize our benefit, uh, maximize our recovery. So, for example, uh, we know that there's a third-party case pending. Uh, hey, look, that third-party attorney, that plaintiff's attorney, this is the only time in the universe where we're actually aligned with them. This is our best buddy now. We want this plaintiff's attorney to do great and get the maximum amount of recovery from that third-party tortfeasor. So sometimes we'll be there helping them. You know, We'll be pointing them towards, hey, use this expert. We've seen this expert before. They testify well. Pick this person. Right, and it also might be a situation where his, the plaintiff's third-party attorney isn't necessarily communicating with the workers' compensation attorney. So if they don't have all the information available, there have been cases where we uh, give off that information mm -hmm. uh, just so it helps them speed the process along on the third-party front. Um, the relationships issue, the information issue, it really helps for us to be involved. And I know we've had cases where we even sit in on mediations, oh, depositions. Yeah. Uh, and that can help both fronts, right? We talk about how it speeds the process on the third-party front, but sometimes there might be information that we don't know on the workers' comp side. So it right. might even be valuable yeah. For us uh, as the comp attorneys to say, okay, maybe statements made in contradiction or sure. new treatment issues, uh, it's it's always very beneficial to uh, poke our head in and make sure we know what's going on. Yeah, so I mean that's a great point. I mean, maybe the claimant is making contradictory statements 
in that third-party action, which right. is maybe something we want to keep in our back pocket. We'll let them say whatever they want to say in that third-party case, get the biggest recovery possible. But now I've got a little uh, a snippet of, of information that might be useful in the defense of my workers' comp case. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we've been asked to come to the table at a mediation and just sit there uh, and represent the carrier's interest or the employer's interest in that reimbursement. In other words, the parties have been asked to come to a mediation, a settlement conference sure. of some kind. There's a judge sitting there wants to get parties to reach consensus, and sometimes it's valuable to have us sitting there because we can represent that interest. Maybe we can compromise it. And oftentimes, because we are wearing those two hats, right, we're on the plaintiff's side. We want them to recover money. But also, we're defense attorneys at heart, sure, right? I mean, at the end sure. of the day, that's that's what I am through and through. Right and so the, de- the defense attorneys think, hey, these guys understand me. They come, they understand where I'm coming from. And our adversaries realize, meaning the plaintiffs, understand, hey, uh, they, they want the biggest recovery. And maybe both sides will listen to us sometimes. So right. That could be sometimes you, you provide what may seem like an unbiased opinion to all parties. Uh, there's always a little bit of bias because of what we do. But uh, for that purpose, you can be, uh, you can provide value to that that Absolutely. portion of the case. Absolutely. All right. Um, well, that's a little bit about reimbursement. Please ask us any questions you have about reimbursement, and particularly the practical aspects of maximizing your reimbursement. Let's talk about uh, the situation where the claimant has not filed their own third-party case, and we call that subrogation. Right. And subrogation. Uh, Again, it's different from reimbursement because essentially you are not stepping in the shoes there. You're actually almost on his team. Here, you are taking his place completely because he, for whatever reason, does not file against that third-party defendant. But we don't want to lose those rights to reimbursement. So we want to step into his shoes, take his place, and fight his battle for possibly the only time in the case. Yeah, we've probably given this slide away by a million miles, but yes, absolutely, in New York, you can subrogate. New York's got a very robust subrogation rule, so yes, you absolutely can do it. Some jurisdictions, you can't. Uh, let's take a look at a typical case. We've got an outside employee maybe going to a convention or meeting a client on his way there, has a slip and fall in the airport, and of course, uh, doesn't own that hallway. Maybe somebody maintained it negligently. Someone else may someone else's negligence. Some other tortfeasor contributed to our employee getting injured. Files a workers' compensation claim. Uh, we're paying out these benefits, and our lovely employee, uh, who felt very comfortable filing a workers' comp claim against us, says, "I don't want to sue anybody. Uh, you know, I'm not a plaintiff. I don't want to be dragged into court." What happens next? So. These are the types of claims that we uh, can use subrogation to our benefit. And some of them may actually be surprising, right? So you might have the typical tortfeasor claim that, you know, you just go straight to, to uh, their defendant and make the claim for the claimant. But it's also viable in medical malpractice and legal malpractice claims. Sometimes you might have a case where the workers' comp doctor performs a, a surgery or a procedure and doesn't really do the best job, right? Maybe she leaves uh, some, some some metal in there. You know, and the scalpel gets sewn up inside of a claim. That, that's, right? We've that, seen those. that's awful. That sounds painful. <laughs> uh, but it does happen. Uh, the claimant may like that doctor, irrespective of the fact that there's a scalpel sitting in his shoulder. So continued treatment may actually prevent him from filing a medical malpractice Or just claim. doesn't want to, right? They Maybe he doesn't, doesn't want, want to. Take right? the time just tell expense. the comp carrier to pay me, right? Sure. So we're going to step into his shoes. We're going to file the malpractice claim against the doctor and make sure that your reimbursement rights aren't lost. And that's really important. Same thing goes for a legal malpractice claim, right? There's a statute of limitations in order to file the third-party cause of action. If they say they're going to do it, but then they don't do that, maybe the claimant doesn't want to uh, move forward with a legal malpractice claim. Maybe it's just too much to deal with. Again, we're not going to waive those rights on your behalf. We'll institute that 
and make sure uh, Section 29 is preserved. Right. So it's a pretty robust power that we have to stand in their shoes and bring these claims on their behalf. Um, let's talk about how we mechanically are allowed to subrogate in New York because there are some steps we have to follow. Uh, first, our right to subrogate, to step into the shoes of the claimant and file that third-party lawsuit, that civil lawsuit on their behalf, uh, does not begin until six months have elapsed from the time we have paid a scheduled loss of use or a loss of wage earning capacity, that would be a permanent residual disability award, or one year from the date of loss. And the claimant has decided not to pursue the action. Now, we have a duty at the end of that one-year period to send a letter to the claimant, and the statute even says what we have to put into the letter. We have to tell the claimant that, quote, a failure to commence the action within 30 days operates as an assignment of this claim to your employer, essentially giving them the big heads up. If you don't do something now, uh, your employer is going to gain that right. Well, in my experience, when we've sent these letters, that's generally when they run to their friendly right. attorney at law that advertises on the bus stop bench or during daytime TV. That's generally when they go, the light bulb, you know, right. sort of goes off above their head and they go, wait a second, if this case is so good that my employer is willing to take it, maybe I should go. Yeah, and Greg, you know, you know I like to talk about defend from day one, right? If we're talking about one year and 30 days, you can actually start that process by knowing, okay, if this is a typical motor vehicle accident case or maybe a scaffold law case, there's going to be a third party here. Let me calendar one year ahead of time mm -hmm. from the date of loss and know that if the claimant hasn't filed within there, I'm going to start that process. I'm immediately going to send certified mail that acts as notice to him to say, hey, if you don't do this, we're going to take this for you and, and help our client out. That's right. So that's it's called using your diary effectively. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about the limitations to our recovery. So we can't recover. Uh, basically, it's a very robust subrogation act. We can go and get as all the way up until every last penny uh, that we have been exposed in the workers' compensation context. Uh, the limitation is no recoveries against first-party benefits, and that's because New York's got a motor vehicle law that says the first $50,000 of medical treatment and lost time wage continuation benefits, those are considered first-party, meaning funded through your own motor vehicle policy, and therefore they are shielded right. uh, from the our right to subrogate or recover them. Now, the interesting part is, it's $50,000, and everybody throws that around as a rule, but it's really $50,000 within the first three years. If the claimant doesn't receive any first-party benefit in the first three years, guess what? You can you can subrogate or get reimbursement from dollar one. Um, second, uh, there is no recovery for underinsured motorist benefits or uninsured motorist benefits, um, and that is because that's a that's a, a policy or coverage that that employee or injured party obtained for themselves. Um, so, and then the final limitation, and, and that's covered by the insurance law section 51. And then uh, finally, the last limitation is that period of time you've got to right. wait. You've right. got to give that claimant a chance to bring their own case. Now, when we do step into their shoes, there are problems. Of course, right? And think about a claimant who is not filing within that year and 30 days, right? If he doesn't want to do that for himself, and we're going to take that away from him, essentially, is he likely to cooperate with us? Not likely. So we do see that problem. It hasn't uh, always manifested himself, but it is a right. problem. We understand that it is there, but we're experienced in this area. We know that we can still uh, speak to the claimant or his attorney, uh, if he chooses to have one, and, and talk about the issues that are in in place before we can get a recovery. Yeah. Another one is when a claimant's unrepresented and in the workers' compensation claim. Yeah. If they're thinking that it's not important enough for me to get an attorney on the workers' comp side, it may be more likely that they would 
not be represented on third party side, right. maybe not file a, file a claim that way. So um, we do see this a lot. It doesn't stop us because we want to make sure that you get the full right of reimbursement. We just want to let you know that there there are roadblocks when they do. Yeah, that. then the, another roadblock that I can foresee or that's happened to us is when we step into their shoes and subrogate on their behalf, um, we're stepping into the shoes of the employee. But I'm actually not trying to get the maximum recovery possible. I'm only trying to satisfy your lien or your right to reimbursement. And in fact, that's my duty. My duty is to the carrier or to the employer. So we send a letter to the claimant. We say, hey, we're stepping in on your behalf, but comma, we're not actually trying to get you a million dollars. I'm just trying to get my, my duty is to get my employer reimbursed, right. Right. Uh, which also is a trigger for them to say, wait a second, our interests aren't aligned. And truly, they're not because I don't care about getting this person the most amount of money. All I care about is getting my insured, my client, right. their money back. If it leans $200,000, I don't care about $201,000. Nope. We don't care. That's just a waste of our effort, actually. So uh, that's where we sort of um, come into problems dealing with these claimants. And, you know, of course, the, the challenge of in the workers' comp context, I represent your employer. I'm trying to minimize your benefit. <laughs> right. And then I put on my other pair of shoes, uh, and now I'm your attorney trying to get your maximum award in a civil context. So there's a lot of challenges there. Um, last thing we're going to talk about today, and by the way, I'm looking at my question screen. I don't see any questions coming in. So uh, either we're doing amazingly or people forgot to type them in as we went along. Please type in your questions. Uh, is the statute of limitations in New York? New York has a three-year statute of limitations for personal injury claims. Yeah, you guys might want to take a screenshot of this slide because Greg spent five hours putting this, just this together. One, just that one um, slide. Yep. So, so we'd like to remember. leave you with that uh, thought. Of, that's a, a very long amount of time to go back be, be able to to bring these personal injury claims. All right, so now we've got time for questions. I'm looking over here. i got a whole separate computer uh, that's just here for questions. I don't see anything popping up, so we're going to keep going. And then if anybody has questions, I see one uh, shooting in here. We'll try to answer it. Um, I just want to remind everyone that this webinar series uh, loosely follows my New York Workers' Compensation Law Handbook. I hope everybody that's watching has a copy of our self-published handbooks. We also have one for New Jersey and a New Jersey webinar series. I also am the author of the LexisNexis Practice Guide for New Jersey. Uh, that's really not geared towards risk professionals. It's really mainly for attorneys and judges. But if anyone wants a copy of that, please let me know. Um, these webinars are part of our overall outreach and sort of things we do for the community. Uh, we encourage everyone to come to the webinars, but there's a lot of articles on our website. We publish on average 10 to 15 articles a month. We also have an email newsletter that you can sign up for on our website, and we encourage everyone to do that. Um, we now also do a podcast, which is uh, Christian Sison. Uh, it's every third Friday of the month, and that's really a much higher level. We like to think of these webinars as sort of a 101 level webinar, uh, but your, your discussions are much more in-depth. Absolutely, Greg, and, and you know, we want to invite you guys to, to uh, join those. Every third Friday of the month, so it took our premiere episode was actually this past Friday, um, and we're very proud of it. So we want to make sure that you guys tune in. Uh, you know, it's part of that Defend from Day One series, and we talk about high-level issues that maybe uh, you you have in your cases. And last last week was opiates, which everybody's interested in opiates. Right, right. Talking which is recent a nationwide on. problem. So we we tried to tackle that one uh, as part of the premiere episode. But uh, next month is actually going to be about coverage disputes. So we invite you to attend on the third Friday in January. All right, and we tried to stretch this out a lot, but still no questions over here. I hope the questions are working. Um, Next month, our topic is Medicare Secondary Payer Act. 
and how that impacts the resolution of New York workers' compensation cases in the context of Section 32. So we'll be talking about Medicare secondary payer and lump sum dismissal of cases. And, um, oh, I got one from Lee. Okay, thank goodness. One question over here. Uh, Lee says, can we recover liens on Section 32 payments? Great question. So if you have a Section 32 agreement with our office, we do not draft them without putting in an item about losing the Section 29 rights. Right. We actually put something in there that's saying we're maintaining the Section 29 rights. Right. And so if you enter into a Section 32 settlement and a settlement on the third party comes in later, your, your rights to reimbursement are still there. Yeah, you've got to put it in the Section 32. Right. So that's something, I mean, we pretty much slip it into every Section 32. We just say, this 32 is absolutely lienable. We demand to be reimbursed. Um, you know, again, that's one of those prospective things that you're do, we're doing uh, to make sure that we're not giving up rights. I'll tell you another thing that we do. When we do consent to a third-party settlement, right, because under Section 29, we have to consent to settlements. Right. Otherwise, the claimant's waiving the right to future workers' compensation. When we consent to them. We say, we're consenting to this settlement but not every future settlement you may have. Because right. you know, just because a claim is involved in a motor vehicle accident and settles a civil case, yeah, they might have three more cases. Maybe there is a medical malpractice case that's going to emerge a year from now. Uh, maybe they'll end up with a legal malpractice case. So we're very careful in our consent letters that we say we're only consenting to this settlement that's before us today. And in the Section 32s, that's always in there. Right. You know, we're retaining our Section 30, our 29 lien rights, and we consider the, the corpus, the money we paid in the 32, to be reimbursable as well. All right, and with that, I don't see any other questions popping up. Lee, thank you very much for that question. And that concludes our webinar. Merry Christmas, everybody. Defense from day one. Month.